Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with the greatest gift imaginable. Free beer. Thanks to our friends at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to get eight exclusive craft beers from around the world for free. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com slash party. That's B-W-E-R, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. I'm sure you'll have figured it out, but it's best to be clear. And cover just £4.95 for the postage. On top of that, political party listeners get two extra free beers, so that's a total of ten free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They traverse the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries the earth has to offer, and they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver you a case with a different theme. Previous themes have included Germany, Korea, Norway, South Africa, California, Finland, and many more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that they don't hold you to ransom, there's no lock-in, and you can leave at any time. Your first box will be sent to you the very next day. As well as the best, most interesting beer money can buy, your case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, which explains the theme of the box and the individual beers. Plus, you also receive a tasty snack just to top it all off. The box I got has been a godsend to me these last couple of weeks. Some of the beers are incredible. They sent me one called the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Porter, which was unlike anything I'd ever tasted, and a Mango IPA. I mean, I've never tried. I've never tried beer like it, um, and it, it, you can tailor it to your taste. Basically, if you don't like dark beers, you choose the light plan, and obviously, if you like light beers, you choose the light one. It's so easy. Even I figured it out. Just go to www.beer52.com/party to get your first case of eight beers for free, and don't forget, political party customers get an extra two unmissable beers for free. That's beer52.com/party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast. This episode features Anthony Scaramucci, Donald Trump's former Director of Communications at the White House. I first met the Mucci a couple of years ago. It was brilliant fun to interview. And this time, uh, even more so, because I got more time with him to really unpick his thoughts. Because as well as being really fast-witted and a sharp talker, he's a brilliant thinker and can communicate his thoughts in a really powerful way. And has thought about this crisis in every regard, not just from the perspective is the the industry that he knows, that Skybridge Capital and, and finance and the markets, but also in terms of a stimulus package across the whole economy. And of course, he can give us those personal insights into the workings of Donald Trump, the fundamental insights into his character that mean we understand why he's mishandling not just this crisis, but any crisis. And also, really important, the things that Donald Trump measures himself against. 
It's just endlessly fascinating. Uh, and it's a brilliant conversation. I should say, I mean, really, it, one of the most enjoyable episodes of this podcast I've ever recorded. So you're in for a real treat. So um, get yourself comfy, uh, get a chocolate bar, lower <laughs> the lights and enjoy yourself because uh, this is a real treat. I should say as well that this was recorded before Boris Johnson was admitted into intensive care on Monday. So that's why uh, the issue of, I suppose, the severity of the Prime Minister's condition isn't mentioned. And I just wanted to flag that up at the start because I didn't want it to look weird that we hadn't mentioned it or indeed disrespectful um, because I just really hope he gets well as soon as possible uh, and found the last day quite hard to deal with because um, whatever our politics, I think most of us want our Prime Ministers to do well. They represent our country. And even though we might not think of it like that, we might not be consciously aware. I think watching the news last night um, will have made a lot of people realise that actually we we compartmentalise our time alive in terms of prime ministers in the way that people do with football seasons. You measure them on, oh, that happened when Tony Blair was prime minister or Margaret Thatcher. They're in they're in a, a huge part of our lives, whether we like it or not. And I think um, now we're in a situation where the prime minister is really ill. I think in a way it's reminded us that Deep down, however we vote, a lot of us do have a, a respect for the politicians, certainly the ones that end up in the highest office and have to guide the country, because in the end, they're the custodians of so many of our hopes and dreams. Their decisions will have a direct impact on how long we live, how educated we are, how successful our businesses are, um, and all sorts of other things. Um, I think we live through them in a way that sometimes we don't appreciate. So I just, as with everyone, I just really hope he gets better. Um, and I think there is something, there's just something so cruel about it. Um, I think with Boris, there's something particularly about him that because he's a relief character for so many people in politics and in the country, that he's the one that makes people feel better. Um, in a way that makes it more distressing that the guy who would joke about this is, is so severely affected by it. But I just think there's a really positive thought just as when I'm sat in the flat gazing out the window, daydreaming about the time that I'll next be in a pub beer garden, looking back on this as hopefully it was a blink of an eye. Um, I just, the thought of Boris Johnson recovering and then being able to make light of it at some point, I think will be a huge cathartic experience for the country. So I just wish him well and Carrie Simmons as well and his family and all his loved ones, many of whom will be listening to this uh, and lots of his colleagues will be listening and I'm, However well you know Boris Johnson or not, I think we're all feeling the same way. It's just so tragic and we just hope he's okay and that he gets well soon. So uh, that's enough of the uh, rambling uh, emotion. Um, so yes, this episode features Anthony Scaramucci. There isn't a discussion in the episode about uh, Boris Johnson's health because at, at the point we recorded it, it hadn't uh, got to the point where he's in intensive care. But um, this is just a brilliant political chat and I remember saying this after the Laura Koonsberg episode and obviously all my guests can talk really well because that's kind of their trade but some people can really talk well and Anthony Scaramucci can really talk well um, to the point where his, his style kind of elevates what he's saying like all great speakers so enjoy this uh, an hour with the mooch 
Delighted to be joined by Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, Anthony, oh, and Anthony Scaramucci's son. Hello there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Nick Scaramucci. Matt, how you doing? Yeah, we're we're trapped um, in the house. So anything. This is day twenty-three of the quarantine. So I shaved just for you. Okay, the beard. Was, <laughs> I look, it looked and like that, a Sasquatch before this podcast. You know, the beard was like down a year ago. And how are you? But how I, are you finding quarantine? Well, you know, you know, my wife and I went through a very bad tussle when I was in the White House, which ended up in the tabloids. And so the good news is we've reconciled and we seem to be doing pretty well. I've only been uh, served with divorce papers twice in the last 23 days. So I'm sort of hoping to, I'm hoping to reduce that ratio next week. You know what I'm saying? But so yes, far, so good. Well, good luck. Good luck. Um, yeah. Keeping everything together. That's good to know that uh, you, you're managing to... Um keep the family together um how about the country then I, I mean first and foremost let's deal with its leader donald trump your former boss how yeah. would you rate his handling of this crisis well, be, well before we go into that though how lucky am i that i got fired like that though right i mean at the end of the day right <laughs> you imagine me trying to deal with this thing i mean i i was able to keep my hair i mean i was probably i'd probably be bald by now working with this lunatic but listen i mean you know he's obviously mishandled it He's going to try to pretend otherwise. He's going to want to blame and deflect blame and criticism and all that other stuff. And he thinks that these uh, press conferences are helping him, but it's just uh, one, you know, uninterrupted series of buffoonery. So uh, it's been a disaster. He could have handled it way better. He had all of the information. Um, in fairness to him, shutting down the U.S. economy is a very big deal. But up against that was, unbelievably hard evidence that if he had shut it down in February, we would have flatlined that curve the way South Korea and the way Singapore flatlined their curve. And we'd already be out of this thing. So now we're in the midst of it. We're basically the epicenter. I live about 20 miles outside of New York City, which is effectively the American Wuhan now. And uh, it's, tr it's an absolute unmitigated tragedy. What's going on, Matt? So if you were working for him still, as well as being bold... What advice would you be giving him? Well, I got in trouble on CNN the other day because the woman said, well, what would you say to him? I said, I mean, before or after I contemplated taking the cyanide tablet, which was in the front drawer, I got in trouble for saying that. But, but no, I mean, what would I say? I would say that uh, you got to get on the offensive and speak the truth. Um, if he had locked the country down for 21 days, instituted a uh, no-fly zone unless of an emergency, locked the country down, I think we'd already be out of this thing. And so um, you, you could have called the national holiday for the markets too. I think that would have calmed things down. So the markets are off about 20 to 25%, depending on the market. Um, the way you have to think of this thing is that we're sort of in a national hurricane. I think that's the same for the UK. So the hurricane is ripping through. Uh, it's causing a six to nine week work stoppage. But the very good news is when we leave our homes, the homes are still intact and our water infrastructure is okay our electrical grid is okay and we can sort of return back to work so so to me uh i would have probably put a little bit more positive spin on this he looks like he himself has gotten hit by an avalanche and he has not responded well because one of the problems for president trump is you can't yell fake science you want to yell fake news you want to turn objective things into subjectivity those are all part of his deflection, all part of his con. But you can't say to somebody, 
two plus two equals seven and don't listen to this news reporter who's telling you that it's four, you know? So, I mean, this was one of those things that really caught him off guard uh, because it's a scientific thing rather than a speculative thing or uh, a, a subjective thing. He was suggesting at the start of it that it, that it might even be a hoax. I mean, it, why isn't he taking this seriously? Is this just, he doesn't take anything seriously or is he always dubious? Is he a conspiracist when it comes to things well, like he's total germs and health? Yeah, no, he's a total conspiracy theorist. You know, he, he constantly drives on that. You have to remember his entire life, he's been an outsider. And so what ends up happening to you when you're an outsider is you start to believe, you know, it's you against them. There's a conspiracy against you. And so therefore, that has to be a much bigger or major conspiracy you know, you remember from our conversations, I grew up in a blue collar family. And so, you know, I've always been an outsider in so many different ways, but I don't care about it. You know, uh, Trump happens to be, President Trump happens to be an outsider that has a huge chip on his shoulder, you know, and it drives him crazy that he can't get into certain clubs and it drives him crazy that he's not, uh, you know, invited to certain things that are quote unquote elitist. You know, I could care less. You know, I'm probably like a blue, I'm probably like a blue collar Brit that way. You know, God bless. You don't want me in your country club. That's fine. I mean, probably most people want me to landscape their golf course as opposed to invite me on there to play golf. That's totally fine. You know, my point being is you either get upset about that in your life or you don't. And President Trump gets very, very upset about that. That's why he goes into all of this mania. But do you think he's felt at all the weight of responsibility that he realizes that his decisions will be life and death for potentially tens of thousands of Americans. That I, that I think, that I think is, is weighing on him. I, I do think that, I mean, he is a human being like everybody else. I mean, one thing about him though, when he does a news search, he's searching T R U M P. He is not searching U S A and he's definitely not searching Y O U. Okay. He could care less about Y O U, but T R U M P T R U M P. And so, um, but I think in the midst of all that, in his quiet moments, he's like, wow, what's going on is catastrophic. And a lot of this stuff I could have avoided. And then that causes him to go into full denial mode to pretend otherwise. Do you think you'll feel any guilt or remorse about the fact that lives that could have been saved will be lost? No, that, that he doesn't feel. He doesn't have any guilt or remorse. He's a very detached guy. When you are that level of narcissism, like everybody in your field of vision is just an object. You know, so somebody asked me if Trump is a racist, I laughed. I said, he's not a racist because are you racist against a black or a white car? Okay. I mean, you're not. Okay. Those are objects in your field of vision. So that's why, you know, he'll let somebody out of prison and then his acolytes will say he's not a racist or then he'll do something ridiculous like suppress polling in certain areas of the black community. And other people will say he is a racist. It's not about him being racist. It's what's in the best interest of Donald J. Trump. You see what I mean? So he could care less about this sort of stuff. I think it bothers him mildly, but no, I don't think he has a level of guilt or anything like that. You know, I mean, he's one of the few guys, I mean, he's gotten a lot fatter. I mean, he looks probably 30 or 40 pounds heavier than when he got inaugurated, but he's one of those few guys that's not aging in the job like these other people because he's so detached. You know, it's really more about him than anything else. I mean, as well as being a narcissist, it, it sounds like he lacks empathy, that, that he's almost a psychopath. Yeah, sociopath. I think it's more of a sociopath than a psychopath. You know, sociopath can be 
on that borderline and can live in a normalized world. And I think the great danger for all of us is that what we're doing is we're allowing some level of normalization of his behavior. So we're taking him seriously. You know, the press is, has to cover him. He's the president of the United States. So he acts nuts and he gaslights. He said 18,000 lies. And now we sort of move the goalposts to allow him to sort of do that. And so uh, that's the stuff about the whole situation that I think is corrosive to the society that hurts the society. His initial stance was that it was a hoax. Then he goes through a period of call, calling it the Chinese virus. Now, yeah. when he's doing that, is that purely a deflection technique or is that a result of any deep-seated prejudice, do you think? Well, again, I think it's related to his base. He knows that that will fire up his base. He knows his base is xenophobic. He knows his base would respond to calling it the Chinese virus. I don't know if you've noticed he stopped calling it that. Yes. Because it turns out that the PPE, the personal protection equipment, the face masks, the potential uh, ventilators, the stuff that we need. And by the way, since we outsource most of our pharmaceutical manufacturing to China, uh, you know, and their state television is threatening to cut that off. I think he's dialed back some of that rhetoric now. So it's, it's just, it's just, you know, it's borderline insanity. This is the first American president that we've had in modern history that has a borderline personality disorder. And so, you know, we're dealing with it. I mean, it's so, it's such a scary time anyway, wherever people are living in the world and people are having to put their faith in governments that, you know, millions and billions of people didn't vote for. And it's the same in the UK, just hoping that, uh, you know, a party that for a lot of people they would never support is going to help them in their hour of, of most need. I can't imagine what it's like to be going through that process, having Donald Trump in power. It's not even about whether you're left wing or right wing. He has spread so many false rumours about this crisis from the outset. I mean, he said not just that it was a hoax, that in April the warm weather would kill it off uh, and so many other things. I mean, we had 15 cases. It was going to zero. This was a democratic hoax. It's just the flu. Yeah, so uh, all those things. All as, in, in terms of the communications, and obviously you were, he's head of comms for, for a short space of time, but nevertheless, right, right. when you're communicating through a crisis like this, I mean, he's breaking all the rules, isn't he? Well, he had, but listen, he has broken all the rules since he got into the game, right? And so I think his instincts are to break the rules and his instincts are to be disruptive. But I, I think what scares me is it's not just him. You have willing enablers. You know, there was a great book written about 25 years ago called Hitler's Willing Executioners. And it was written by Daniel Goldhagen who basically interviewed people that for whatever reason decided they were going to side with Hitler and his demagoguery. And when the spell broke, they had this tremendous guilt and this tremendous remorse. And so you've got Republicans who could have ousted him from office, you know, recently, you know, we're talking February, he could have been thrown from office and we could have had a better set of normal people trying to handle this problem. Okay, whatever you think of the strengths and weaknesses of Vice President Pence, at least he operates inside the bell curve of some relative normalcy, you know, and Trump doesn't. And so it's, it's sad to watch it for me because I love the country. I, when I went to go work for President Trump, I was perhaps a little bit too idealistic. You know, I grew up in a blue collar family. I lived a good part of the American dream. 
I got asked to go work for the American president. I said, okay, yeah, I'll certainly do that. And I probably didn't come at it with the cynical realism that I needed to at that time. And so now I'm sitting here looking at that cynical realism and saying, oh my God, these people really only care about being in power. They don't care about the American people. The guy broke the law with the Ukraine. He doesn't act normal. It's probably a 25th Amendment situation. So for those in the UK, if you think the president's nuts, his vice president and the cabinet can get together and say, excuse me, the guy's nuts. We have to seek his removal from office. And so um, that conversation has come up more than once. But these people want to stay in power more than they want to serve the people. And I think that's the great sadness for me. That conversation about the 25th Amendment then, do you think it's come up at senior levels? Oh, no question. No, I've got buddies of mine in the administration that have taught, you know, it has surfaced and circulated among the cabinet members. No question. And, I mean, the, and, guys, and, the guys, the guys, okay, Matt, you're a comedian <laughs> and you're a very smart guy and comics get paid to like see the truth and deliver the truth in a really funny way. That's what makes most comedy. I mean, when you're looking at this guy, you think he's batshit crazy, right? I mean, you're yeah, looking course, at him man. and you're going, okay, this guy is completely batshit crazy. How are we even, it's like a farce that we're actually having the world's strongest economy and arguably the largest military to be run by this babbling buffoon, you know? And so I tried to help him. Uh, I didn't realize how dangerous he was in the beginning. That's my fault. I have to own that. But I tell people, listen, there were 62.8 million of us that voted for him. Uh, if you want to ridicule me for supporting him, I accept it. But let's create an off-ramp for people that got this wrong, you know, and say, okay, listen, you got it wrong. It's okay to admit it. Let's move on and try to find somebody that's a little bit more normal, a little bit more balanced. So do you think there are senior members of that cabinet who are open to this idea of using the 25th Amendment? At this point, I would say no. I know it has surfaced probably at least twice over the last three years, but I think that they're paralyzed now. And I think that they're, you know, they're waffling. But every time he gets to the press podium, I don't know if you saw him yesterday, but it was yeah. like rancorous nonsense, no news, no breakthrough, just rancorous nonsense. And then he's, he's calling for, uh, uh, hydrochloroquine or so hydroxychloroquine. I don't know. I, this drug, any real doctor will tell you there are huge side effects. Remember something about drugs. My internist is a close personal friend of mine. He says to me, drugs are a poison that you take that have some positive side effects. You have to always look at drugs from that point of view, not the other point of view, right? So when you think about it that way, you're, you, you're not, you shouldn't be taking drugs that have no proven efficacy. Okay, just because he thinks so, you know, he's like the quack in that movie Contagion, you know, where they were, they were, you know, they, they arrested him. Jude Law played the quack who was saying, you know, forsythia is the right drug for this uh, pandemic that's broken out. I mean, and we got the president of the United States playing that quack. You know, it's, it's sort of absurd, you know, to be honest. Do you think he perceives, even if he doesn't feel any remorse or responsibility to protect the public, do you think he perceives that his behaviour might create a political threat to himself, that if he's seen not to be in control, that might make this year's election more difficult for him? I think he thinks his uh, mannerisms, his impetuosity, his 
unorthodox style, I think propelled, I think he thinks it propelled him to the presidency. And I think what's happening now is a very large group of the population has grown exhausted by his mannerisms. And so what I'm hoping, there's 15% of the population in the United States that are ultimately going to decide the presidential election. They live in 11 states, and they're mostly moderate Republicans, moderate Democrats, or independents. And I think those people, I'm hoping and praying, have got Trump fatigue. And they're like, okay, enough of the nonsense, enough of the vicious attacks, enough of the inappropriate use of Twitter, enough of the sort of uh, disunity of America. So he's out there, we're in a pandemic, and he doesn't want to blame it on himself, of course. So now he's pitting the governors against him. He's got his son-in-law saying, well, this national stockpile, where if you go to the website, it's supposed to be available for all the states. He gets up there, acts like a nut in a press conference last week, and then they change the language on the website to dictate to what he's, it's, it's almost Stalinistic. It's almost Orwellian in terms of the disinformation and the things that they're doing to the public. So this is why podcasts like yours or being able to speak out at a public venue, this is why free speech is so important in a society that's under siege like this. So for him, just to try and really understand his mindset, do you think actually outcomes don't matter at all? He doesn't think, well, I'll be judged on whether, say, education improves or if the economy grows. As long as I keep behaving like this, outcomes actually don't matter. Yeah, I want to stay in power. I want to be a two-term president. If I keep behaving like this, this is my, this was my ticket to winning last time. It'll likely be my ticket to winning this time. I think what's happened economically to our society has unnerved him because I think his three-legged stool to win re-election was strong immigration, strong border policy, very, very strong economy, and, uh, you know, a culture war, you know, that culture war, you know, he's the last white guy, although he's an orange person, he's the last (laughs) orange, the last orange person with his finger in the dike to prevent the descending hordes of latte drinking transvestites that are going to take over the country. You follow what I'm saying? And so, so that's, that's where this is right now. He's a very tribal disunifying guy. And it's sort of sickening to watch it, but we're here now. So we go, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I think we can beat them. Uh, remember this, no American president has survived a recession in the year of his reelection. And when you talk about the moderate Republicans, would they vote for Joe Biden? Would they vote for Bernie Sanders? And who are those two is the best candidate to beat him, do you think? Well, I think Joe Biden is certainly the best candidate to beat him. I, I think that uh, Bernie Sanders is a little bit like Trump. He's got that narcissism in him. You know, he thinks he's the only one that can solve the problem. He's resoundingly got his ass kicked in these primaries, yet he won't leave the race. You know what I mean? So it's sort of like a, uh, it's like having a bad uh, house guest. You know, they, they've stayed for 10 days and you're like, okay, what are you doing? You know, remember what Ben Franklin said about house guests, you know, it's like fresh fish that lasts about a day or two, then it gets very, very rotten. It starts to smell funny. So Bernie, Bernie Sanders is like the rotten fish in this race. He should be long out of this race and consolidating his power with Joe Biden like the rest of those candidates did uh, when it became clear that they weren't going to beat him. 
So Joe Biden, you think, could defeat Trump and that people who voted Republican last time yes. could no vote question. for him. What about yeah, you? No question. You, you donated to Obama in the past before you helped yeah. um, Trump. Yeah. Would, you, would you work well, for Joe Biden? School. Would you campaign I went, for him? I went to law school with President Obama, so that's why I donated to him. Um, yeah, no, I would work for Joe Biden. Look, I, I just want good government. You know what I mean? I, I was a business, I'm a business person. You know, I was in business, still in business 31 years. I was in the White House for 11 days, okay? I'm a business person. When the president asked me to help him, I probably got sucked into the grandeur of that or the illusion of that grandeur. You know, that's my fault. I have to own that about, but I tell people, look, I'm a human being. If you're, if you're not a human being or you're a better human being than me, God bless you, be sanctimonious and righteous. But I was, thought I was trying to help somebody. I didn't realize how nuts the guy was, you know, and he was, trust me, when I worked for him in the campaign, he was less nuts than he was now. I think the power has created some paranoia. It has been corruptive. And I think it's also uh, detached him more from reality than previously. Just on Russia and his relationship or otherwise with Vladimir Putin and the things that he was asking the Russians to do in, in plain sight, asking them to dig up dirt on Joe Biden and to hack uh, Hillary Clinton's emails. In the brief time that you were there, did he ever talk about Russia with you? Yes. Um, I had one conversation. Uh, I'll, I'll try to shorten it as much as possible. I'm on Air Force One with him, and he's telling me that he's going to veto the Russian sanctions bill. So I'm taking you guys back three years now. July of 2017, uh, they put up in the House, you know, Paul Ryan was running the House, one of his teammates and they got passed in the House and Senate a crippling sanctions bill on Russia for what they did during the 2016 election. So I'm flying with him back from Youngstown, Ohio, Air Force One. I'm in the cabin with him, you know, that little famous uh, desk area. Yes. He's sitting behind the desk. He's looking over at me. He says, well, I'm going to veto this thing. This is ridiculous. Uh, they're trying to delegitimize my electoral success and I'm vetoing this. So I didn't say anything. And he looks at me, he says, well, why are you saying it? I said, well, you're not going to listen to me anyways. I'm not, what, what am I going to say right now that you're going to listen to? No, 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 no. Let me hear what you have to say. I said, well, look, Mr. President, those guys are on your team. It got passed in the House and the Senate. You go to veto it. Mitch McConnell's going to call Chuck Schumer, and he's going to get 20 votes to override that veto. He's going to want to show you who's boss of the nation's capital. Your presidency is only six months old. And these guys were on your team. It'd be one thing if the Democrats voted it in and you vetoed it, but the Republicans, your teammates, voted it in. And so I said, it'll be very emasculating if you, you know, if you don't sign this. And the next day he signed it. I'm not, I'm not taking credit for it like that because, again, the way the president works is whatever in his best interest he's ultimately going to do. But uh, the Russian stuff for him is a point of soreness because, you know, his detractors feel that he won the election as a result of that. And he hates that. Drives him crazy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And do you think he would have ever been daft enough, naive enough, selfish enough, whatever you call it, to have as well as in the open talked and invited Russia to hack the Democratic Party emails, to have in private said similar things or gone further? Well, I think that's the issue going on with Roger Stone right now. It's, it seems very clear that there was a tip-off into the campaign about those hackings. And, of course, there were tells in the then-candidate Trump's speeches, whether Russia, if you're listening, go hack the emails or... I love WikiLeaks or there's some information going to come out on WikiLeaks that's beneficial to me. And so I think that's the big rub with Roger Stone. I predict that Roger Stone will be pardoned because I think Roger Stone has a lot of information that may not reflect well on President Trump. Did you think at any point Trump might get impeached successfully? Uh, well, I... I sort of thought at a moment in time that there was a chance, but I mean, with the help of Fox News, which has really been his propaganda firewall, I think then it became impossible, you know? And so Mitt Romney will go down in history as a courageous man because he voted for what was right. The other guys couldn't bring themselves to do it, unfortunately. And is there any... Out there in the American public, is there any judgment from, from the electorate against Trump for the Russia stuff? Uh, listen, I think it's very split. You know, if you're watching Fox News and you're in that 40% camp, Trump can do absolutely no wrong. And they were calling it a hoax, the pandemic. They were calling a hoax up until like mid-March. So it's a weird set of circumstances right now in our country. I don't know if it's that way in the UK, but there's a, we've split the country into very large tribes that, here's what I'll say to you, Matt, I'll say this to your viewers and listeners, we can't even agree on the facts anymore. You know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we were probably looking at the same news and reading certain objective standards in newspapers. And so now we had a set of facts. And if you were a liberal or a Tory or labor or a Tory, you had a set of facts and now you could argue those facts. We can't even agree on those facts anymore. So mm. I find myself in an argument with somebody. I'm saying, wait a minute, they don't even see it the way I do. They're calling the pandemic a hoax. Okay, well, how am I going to defend? How am I going to respond to that? You know what I mean? When I see the overwhelming lack of capacity that we have in our healthcare services to help people who are on the fringe of that disease. You know, I pray for Boris Johnson's help. Chris Cuomo is an anchor friend of mine at CNN. I hope these guys get well very quickly. And I hope that they're not in that ugly seam of people who have a predisposed 
genetic condition or an immunological deficiency or an underlying medical condition where the virus could severely hurt them or possibly kill them. But if you were here in New York and you saw the angst of the hospitals or my 23-year-old niece who just graduated from nursing school who's on the front line on the COVID-19 ward of Mount Sinai Hospital, I'm, I'm talking to a guy that's telling me that he thinks that the disease is a hoax and it's just the flu. Okay. I mean, it's just, we're arguing about, we can't even, we can't even come up with the right policy because we can't agree on the facts. Does that we, make sense? Of course. Yes. And we've got, we've got similar problems here, but what this virus does in a way that other political debates don't do that, that when things aren't tangible, if you're dealing with a culture war and you're just sat in your house in Texas or wherever, and you don't see or feel the actual issue, people can catch this virus and they can die from it. And if people who one minute say it's a hoax see their loved ones start to drop dead, do you think at that point they start to think, well, actually, I was a supporter of Donald Trump, but my parents have died, or God forbid that happens. Does that God then... Forbid. This is a unique problem for him in the end, because actually we'll it doesn't discriminate to... as to who could catch it. Yes, we'll have to see, you know, if these red states who elected not to have shelter-at-home rules if these red states, if they're afflicted by the virus, if that will change their opinion of President Trump. I doubt it will. Remember what I said. There's a group of people in this country that see him as the last man standing to prevent the cataclysm of a cultural revolution in the United States. So uh, in their minds, that's why he's been able to attain this sort of demagoguery and this demagogic uh, stature in the country. On the economic measures that uh, the, the government is taking, there's a $2 trillion package, but there seems to be confusion about who can access that and, and how it's accessed. Is that money getting through to the places it's intended to go to? Really good question. So I was analyzing that this morning with my economic team at Skybridge. And so the short answer to that is not fast enough. So it's a little bit slow from a bureaucratic perspective. But I think the longer term answer in three or four weeks, I think that money will flow into the system and will fortify the system. And so uh, in addition to having a a $10 million billion asset management company, I own a uh, restaurant in New York City. And uh, we had to close that restaurant March 1st. Uh, The operating partner filed for those loans. And I think we're entitled to about a half a million U.S. dollars to get the restaurant back open. That's based on our tax revenues and the number of employees that we have. And, you know, he told me, well, if we can get that loan, it'll make it a lot easier for us to open. So I take that as good news from a microeconomic perspective. Uh, There are 31 million small businesses. If they can get 25 to 30 million of them back up and running, I think that'll be very good for the American economy. Loans are one thing because they have to be paid back and, and they can yeah. sometimes well, cause unintentional be, well, hardship. They, they would be forgivable loans. So in other yes. words, uh, the government Rent gives free. you the money. If you decide to hire your people back and you can prove that you put them back on your payroll, the government lets you have the money. You so were be, talking about more of a, grant. Um, a far more ambitious package, a $3 trillion package that included giving $3,000 yes. to every adult in the country. Yes, I thought that was more important. I did the analysis. I actually did the adjusted gross income analysis of all 50 states. 
and backed out what we're not consuming right now. You know, we're not going to restaurants, we're not going to movies, you know, our consumption is way down, but to provide the necessities and then give everybody a little bit of a bump, which would help fuel the regrowth of the economy, I had it at about $3,000 an adult and about $1,500 a child. So they went with 1200 and 500 respectfully, respectively. But I think they're going to add on another one. I predict there'll be another layer of stimulus that comes sometime in the next month or so. And how does it feel for you, Mooch, to be a Republican advocating for the states to be handing out cash? I mean, have you, have you become a socialist? Well, no, it's not that I've become a socialist. I think that this is a war. I, I view this, this is exactly, if you are a libertarian or a conservative like me, this is exactly what the government should be used for. So in my mind, the government should be used to pave the roads, make people safe with a police force or military defense. Uh, the government should obviously figure out a way to create equal, equal opportunity through the educational, the public education system. Those are the great values of a government. I'm not a no-government anarchist sort of a person. In a crisis like this, where you have a global pandemic, and it's nobody's fault, there's no villain here that we could point to, and everybody is a victim of the situation, that's why you have a government. You have a government so that they can step in and provide relief. It's almost like the reason why you and I have home insurance or life insurance or you know, we're paying into the system to expect the government in a period like this to help us. And so uh, myself, I won't be taking any loans. I think it should be means tested. I think people who, uh, who need it should be able to take it and people that don't need it shouldn't be able to take advantage of it. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't see this in the socialist genre as much as I see this as a military relief in a great war. As you say, you're, you're in New York, you've got a restaurant there, Skybridge, your business is based there. Why has New York been so disproportionately affected by this? Nearly half the deaths in the entire United States are in New York. Yes. Well, I think it has to do with, uh, you know, that's an amazing city. And that is a mass transit point and mass destination for the international community. And so... Mm. Um, and, and, and by the way, the disease that we're fighting here in New York is probably 17 to 21 days old. So the people that are hurt right now, they probably can, got contagious March 10th, March 11th, March 12th. And frankly, we didn't have the city shut down by then. If the president, looking at the information he got from our intelligence agencies and from the pandemic experts, called every governor, called every mayor, and in a unifying message said, listen, if we handle this the way South Korea is handling it or Singapore, uh, you're going to have less than 10% of the deaths on a per capita basis. Um, you wouldn't have that situation in New York right now. But listen, we're here now. I'm happy at least that the administration has done the 180 necessary to put the right things in place. Um, and, and for me, I, I'm saddened by what's going on, but I'm also optimistic that we can get to the other side of this thing. And I think we can return to growth faster than other people think, because think of it this way, Matt, it was like a national hurricane or a global hurricane. Uh, but we're able to, it, it just caused a work stoppage. It didn't destroy our homes. 
or our electrical grid and stuff like that. We can, we can leave our houses and go back to work. Your, your main business, Skybridge Capital, manages over $4 yes. billion dollars in stock investments. Firstly, yeah. how effectively can you run a business like that from home? Well, I mean, pretty, pretty, you can run it pretty well. I mean, I have my, uh, my market data terminals here. I've got my uh, phone lines connected. I've got iPads and laptops. And so I'm pretty well connected. I have a VPN system where I can log into the mainframe computers inside our office so I can replicate my desktop. I think what's rough is when you're transacting you're not in your native environment. I'll give you an example. We have a lot of bonds in our portfolio. And so it's a lot easier for me to talk to my colleagues sitting next to me in a row on a trading desk than it is for me to dial them up or have three phone lines going at the same time, trying to see what information they're getting from the marketplace. And I would say on the flip side, I think it's hard for people that I'm transacting with because they're at home as well. You know, imagine a, a, the head bond trader at Goldman Sachs. He's used to being on a desk with 100 people around him where he's gleaning information from the marketplace. Now he's sitting in his house getting beat up by his wife and kids. You You're know what I mean? Yeah. But I mean you, you can hear the yelling and screaming back here. It's like total bedlam in the place, you know? But you're, you're, you're handling a lot of money. $4 billion is a big portfolio. What are you seeing happened to the value of those stocks and what movements oh, are you well, seeing listen, in the we're, markets? We're, we're, we're down. I mean, but I think that's a technical move more than a fundamental one. You know, if you're telling me that the economy doesn't open for a year and we're going to have millions of deaths, then we're, we're in a depression. But if you're telling me that uh, we're going to get the economy open in a few weeks, and yes, we've had thousands of deaths, which is absolutely tragic. I'm not trying to minimize it. But I'm just talking about it from an economic perspective yeah. i think we can recover from that i think we can get back on our feet and i think we can recover from that if you have an interest in reading uh the great influenza which was written by john barry i think it was published in 2004 it, it got uh, reissued in paperback in 2018 for the 100th anniversary of the spanish flu pandemic he writes in the book that in the moment it was a very tragic thing and people were very pessimistic but shortly thereafter, when they got back to work, all of that suppressed consumption came back, all of that demand in the economy came back, and there, lo and behold, you had the roaring 20s. So, so I, I don't want to be too pessimistic here. And are you seeing the value of any stocks rise? I mean, what areas might, you know, as, as a side effect, be, be growing or, or benefiting from this? Well... What isn't benefiting is where I'm more interested, meaning like the gaming stocks, like the Las Vegas casinos. We just bought a ton of those and we bought a ton of the bonds in those casinos because they're not rising. They're, in fact, declining uh, and they're declining on the notion that those casinos are shut and there's no traffic and they're, they're, they're registering losses right now. But unless you think human nature is going to completely change, and I predict that it won't, uh, once things settle down, people will return to those casinos. You know, those casinos after the 2008 crisis went down a lot. They were up eight to nine to one once things started normalizing. So I'm a little bit of a contrarian, Matt. I'm looking not for things that are doing well right now, but I'm looking for things that have been blown to pieces, which I believe will recover once things normalize. 
So political party listeners, loyal listeners to this show, what advice would you give them if they were looking to invest during this period? So I would say you have to do something that's called dollar cost averaging. If you're an individual investor, you should definitely be putting money into the stock and bond markets. And you should try to, I tried to do this my whole life. There's a great book on this called The Richest Man in Babylon. It was written by George Clayson in the 1920s. And it was basically how you can start with no money and make yourself a wealthy person. And the notion was that you had to pay yourself first. So if I got $500, uh, I paid myself 50 and I put it in a bank account. So I treated it like it was a cable bill or I treated it like it was a utility bill. And I would tell people it's never too late to start. You can always find an incremental amount of cash put 50, $100 away, 100 pounds away, and then over time, just average it into the markets. And so every month for 30 years, I have put some money to work on behalf of my family. And then lo and behold, what happens is the markets sort of move like a mountain range, but they steadily climb upward. 80% of the time, they're going up because you're making a very large bet on human progress, and a very large bet on human growth. I mean, look at Walt Disney in 1971. They had one theme park. Now they've got 12 theme parks. Now they own Marvel uh, Entertainment and Marvel Studios. Now they own Star Wars. You know, So the right management teams around a good brand will continue to grow. And so you have to bet the future, and you have to be optimistic about it. Do you hear the screaming in the background? I hope you can hear some of the bedlam. I do. I hope that wasn't a reaction to your advice. No, no, it wasn't a reaction. No, they, they could care less. Believe me, they're just all about taking and pillaging and driving me and their mom crazy. And in New York, right now, I'm still, I'm still married, though, Matthew, so I'm feeling pretty good about that's myself good. Right That's now. good. It's good I've that hasn't changed low, during the course of the interview. Low, I've set low expectations for myself, okay? <laughs> In London, which is similar to New York in a way, it's the most populated part of the country. There have been more cases here than there have in other cities. Um, there's still an issue around people perhaps not following public health advice to the letter. People still congregating on beaches and parks in some mm. places, and uh, not just in London. I mean, what's, what's it like in New York? Are, are there still lots of people on the streets, or is it a ghost town there? Ghost town. No, it's a ghost town. Wow. And, uh, uh, you know, what I thought sort of fascinating is that we are really taking the lockdown seriously. So I don't know where London is in terms of the apex of the crisis, but we're trending towards the top of the crisis. And so I'm just hoping and praying that uh, we can get there, you know, and we can get there in a calm sort of a way. It's such an amazing place, New York. I'm absolutely in love with it. Yeah. And uh, visit as regularly as I can. I, I well, hopefully, I'll get you, hopefully, I can get my restaurant open. You'll come and have a steak with me. Oh, I'd love. So, what is the name of the restaurant? It's called the Hunt and Fish Club. I named it after uh, John Gotti, the Mafia Don, had a place called the Bergen County Hunt and Fish Club. So, I figured, you know, I get stereotyped as an Italian, and why not just go the full Monty? And I named the goddamn place after a Mafia Don's joint, which, of course, everybody gets a kick out of, you know. Well, I would absolutely love to visit next time I'm over. And this show has listeners in New York who hopefully, once, uh, once life returns to normal, will now be... Uh, All right, well, come, come to the restaurant. And we'll if you see me there. in there, let me know. I'll buy you a drink if you're listening. And Matthew, you come over, I'll serve you a steak. I'll serve you a steak in that 
New York tradition. It'll be big enough to choke you. You know, it'll be like a slab <laughs> of, of a cattle. You know, I look forward to that. Um, just just looking forward to the election then. Um, yes. What are the odds of Trump getting reelected? Do you think? I think it's going to be close. I think you know, again, he has Fox News. He has this culture war. Uh, if the economy does recover faster than people are saying, uh, you know, and I also I think, you know, Joe Biden is a good man, but Joe Biden has lost a step. And I'm not trying to say that with any level of ageism. I'm just trying to say that with a objective evaluation. And so I hope I hope Joe Biden can beat him because I think this guy is a systemic danger to the Western canon of liberalism. And I mean liberalism, not in the sense of a political party, but just the idea of our freedom and the idea of who we are as a culture. And so I think Trump is a very big danger to that. So I hope that Joe Biden beats him, but I think it's going to be very close. Of, of the Democratic field, as it existed a few months ago, yes. Yes. who would have been the best candidate for them to pick? Uh, well, I mean, you know, the problem is Mike Bloomberg had the money and Mike Bloomberg could have gone at Trump in, a right, in the right way. Uh, but I think of those available players, you know, I think Joe Biden is probably the only choice, frankly, because he had the gravitas in the party, could raise the money and could compete at that level. Somebody now like Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, I think has risen to prominence in that party. Um, you know, so there are younger players that I think are going to enter the races in 2024, 2028. That could be formidable. But listen, I mean, you know, Trump's done a lot of damage. I mean, the, the Republican Party that I am a member of is no longer in existence. So mm. when Trump leaves and the personality cult breaks, that party's going to have to reevaluate and re-engineer itself. And have any Democrats approached you, any senior Democrats approached you for advice or for intelligence now that they know you're sure. reasonable? Yeah, sure. I've talked to a lot of them, you know, absolutely. And I know you- I know Trump ticks, man. I, I, get, I, I know how to press his buttons. You know, he stopped coming after me on Twitter. You know, I mean, let me tell you something. You've never felt more alive than when the president of the United States is calling you an unstable nut job on Twitter. Never felt more alive. And so, you know, the guy's going off on me, but I'm a New Yorker, so I know how to go off on him. And it was rankling him to no end because he did not like seeing my subtweets on CNN, which were yeah. funnier. You know, I mean, I was calling, I, geez, you lost your fastball. I think I called him Fidel Adolf Trump, the notorious F-A-T. So I got the fat shaming in there, plus the fact that he's a dictator. You know what I mean? And, and, and I think that that combination of stuff was driving him crazy. So he stopped tweeting at me, which is, you know, typical him. He's a keyboard warrior, sort of a bully. You know, face to face, he has a hard time dealing with people and handling conflict. And when was the last time you spoke to him? Uh, Easter Sunday of last year. And what was the nature of the conversation? Well, he was pissed at me because I had just written an op-ed saying that the press is not the enemy of the people. So he was lighting me up and telling me to knock it off. And I said, well, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you get the moderates and the independents. And then he he said something to me very telling. He said, well, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about the base. I'll let everything else take care of itself. And have you had any contact from him since? Has he texted at all or messaged? No. No. And do you ever expect to speak to him again? Ah, uh, you know, I, I at some point expect to speak to him again, yes. I expect that, uh, 
you know, I expect when he's no longer president, and remember, he attacked my suburban housewife on Twitter because he's a low life, right? And by the way, your listeners are starting to figure out that I'm not Ted Cruz, okay? So I'm not going to take that sort of bullshit from somebody, right? So when he's no longer president, I hope that I will have the opportunity to have a face-to-face conversation with him, you know? I have to hold back now on television or podcasts because he's, he's president. But, you know, hopefully I'll have the opportunity to have a face-to-face conversation with him. Because the fact that he's and if I don't, to it's fine too. But I mean, he's yeah. a lo- you know he's a lo- he's a loser. You know, I got to be able to look him in the eyes and tell him that you know people that uh, really know know what a big time loser he is. Because down deep, he has very very low self esteem and he's very insecure. Remember what Stormy said about him. Let me let me show the visual. You know, and that's that's a big problem for the guy. You know, a very big problem for the guy. He but, can't recover from that. Is but is it that he? has a small penis or that he doesn't want people to think he has a small penis or both? No, I think it's very indistinguishably small. I mean, when Stormy told me it was the size of a shiitake mushroom, I almost threw up in my mouth. I mean, I haven't been to a, I haven't been to a sushi restaurant in like two years. Okay. I mean, how the hell could you have miso soup after Stormy Daniels on the Bill Maher show tells me the thing is like a shiitake mushroom. I mean, you know, you, you can't recover from that. But what is, what is the root of his insecurity? You know, I think he got demeaned by, by his dad, you know. I think he never really recovered from that, you know. I mean, it's, to people around the world, it's just so baffling that someone who's so materially rich that has achieved the highest elected office in right. the universe right. would still have hang-ups and still be so... Well, there you go. That's the, Greek tra- that's the Greek tragedy of our time, right? You, you, you know, I think that we... If we study literature and we study ourselves, I think we try to understand that, you know, you, you, you have to respect and admire your own human weaknesses. You know, I, I often tell like my kids, I have five of them, the best among us choose not to judge human frailty so harshly. Like we have to, you know, even accept it in ourselves. You know, when I got blown out of the White House, it was very humbling. It was very humiliating in some ways but you know you and i met i wouldn't have met you had i not had that happen that's true and there's been a lot of a lot of good things that have happened and the other thing is i know how to roll with it you know i know how to take the punch you put the orange wig on when i was on your show i looked at you and said please god don't fire me again i don't think i can <laughs> what was i gonna do you know i mean i'm not, the point is i'm not gonna sit there and pretend i'm above the fragility of human life or the ups and downs of it, you know? And I think, unfortunately, this is a guy that can't handle that. But also, he, he can't handle it, but you've been outspoken about him since you left, and yet last Easter Sunday's ringing you up. I mean, on some level, do you think he's forgiven you, or does he respect people who give it as oh, good as no. he Oh, he, no, he respects people that can... I think he laughs at some of these television pundits that kiss his butt. Honestly, I think he thinks really? it's amusing that he's manipulated them to the point where they're that obsequious and that nonsensical. You know what I mean? I think he likes people that can go after him a little bit, to be honest. Yeah, I definitely believe that. So do you think he regards you as a friend? Uh, well, no, I would say we're not friends anymore. Uh, but, you know, listen, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big boy, no grudges. You know, John Kelly and I, John fired me. We've become very close friends. Um, if he called me and apologized, particularly after attacking my wife, I'd let it go, move on. But that doesn't mean he should be president, Matt. 
you know, we could be in a cordial relationship going forward, but he shouldn't, this guy should not be the president. Well, hopefully at some point in the future, you, Donald Trump, and me can sit down over a steak in New York. Are you going to wear, are you going to wear the orange wig? I'll wear, the, I'll wear whatever you want me to wear. Yeah. Mooch, it is always a pleasure All to right. talk to you. Thank you so Great. much. Great to be on your program. God bless. I hope I see you soon in person. Cheers, and Stay mate. safe and healthy. God bless. Yes, you too. You too. And, um, mate, that was absolutely superb. Thank you so much. All right. All right. God bless, man. I'll see you Love soon. Love you, mate. See you soon. Right. Bye-bye. Same here. Bye-bye. Well, there you go. Anthony Scaramucci, one of the all-time greatest guests in the history of the show, surely. Brilliant fun. Brilliant insight. And what a thinker. And what a communicator. Oh, I hope it's not long before I can go and visit him in New York and have a steak. What I, uh, I tell you what, what a charity auction prize that would be. Steak with the mooch at his restaurant in New York for one lucky bidder. Um, I mean, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> talking out loud now. That is not currently um, a, a prize in any competition. But imagine what, what a life that would be. Um, thanks for getting in touch. Uh, through the email, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Keep your suggestions for guests coming in. Um, Ian Ferguson got in touch. And let me know where you listen. It's just always fascinating to know where people are listening. Uh, Ian Ferguson uh, is an emergency medicine and helicopter doctor in Sydney. Ian, you are doing phenomenal work in this crisis. So on behalf of all of us, all around the world that listen to this podcast, and those of us who make it, Thank you so much, and thank you for listening. Um, So, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope that, even though it does centre on the crisis, um, in a way, because it was talking to Mooch about it, and and talking about America, certainly for those of us in Britain, in a way, it kind of took... It kind of took me out of it for an hour, which was lovely. And also, the message was hopeful, that life will return to normal, we hope, um, before too long. Um... And just how just how pragmatic people are being. Now, this is a guy that worked for Donald Trump in the White House and is advocating sending $3,000 to every adult in the United States. There are people that this crisis really highlights their pragmatism and their talent. And uh, the Mooch is one of those people. And, of course, brilliant insight leading up to the American election later this year. So... I hope you've enjoyed it. I do hope you're well and that your loved ones are as well. Be careful, be safe, follow the advice. Oh, leave a review on iTunes. Thanks to those of you that have, and I'll see you soon. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. 
And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.